HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we explore the relationship between food and style. I knew from the start that I never wanted to, like, hot glue bread onto my body. <laughs> like, I wanted to be able to enjoy it after, and I did. Food, which is so ephemeral, right, is something that you eat and it disappears. With an image, it remains. It stays alive forever. Food and fashion align in that they're both lenses through which to look at culture, right? And they're both also tangible things we can use to express ourselves and our identities. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With your hosts, moi, Zara Tangora. Bobby, you <laughs> sneaky devil, you. This is I want to be you. Two of you trying to be me. Okay, with your host, go ahead, say my name. Zara Tangora. And Bobby Comforto. How's it going? You're very, that's very cute of you to do that. That's cute. It was nice to have the show. I feel really good. I feel just a nice, warm feeling. Oh, me our, too. Our guest, Reed Peterson, was such a heartfelt, um, spiritual, he, he called himself a highly sensitive individual, and you could really feel it. Yeah, I really, 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 really enjoyed talking with Reed. And at the end of our conversation off mic, we were talking just about how different every episode of processing is. And really, it just gave me, I don't know, I guess it's just because I, I, we haven't ever spoken with someone exactly like Reed before, you know, and, and that's great. And uh, well, specifically, he called him besides being a griever, a fellow griever, he called himself he calls himself a grief companion, which yes. is very different than a grief therapist or a grief counselor or a grief support group. It's And that's what the episode felt like. It felt like he was a yes. companion to the process of grief. That's exactly right. And it also gave me the kind of lens to step back and think about all the different people that we've had on the show, which, you know, also feels really, really good mm-hmm. um, to just you know, think of all our wonderful guests, but yeah, he had a very soothing way about him, which I'm going to be really frank. I really needed this morning. Mm -hmm. I'm having a really rough week and a really rough morning. And I feel, I feel in rough shape. And so talking to Reed was really, I felt soothed by him. 
almost as though he's otherworldly, you know, he just, Oh, and really his, cosmically. And, yeah. I don't know who's, I don't even know the words I'm looking for. I just really enjoyed. Well, his, the that. name of his podcast, The Grief Refuge, which we'll talk about, it felt like we were in a refuge. Yeah, which is not right? Grief Refuge. Please excuse me. <laughs> I miss, I misnamed the, uh, the name of the app to begin with and, and podcast. But um, please enjoy our conversation with Reed and, you know, just more, uh, more of a reason than ever to anyone out there who's contemplating maybe seeking uh, any kind of mental health assistance, whether it be therapy or going to a support group or where, whatever it is. I know it can be scary sometimes to think about taking those first steps for people, but um, you know, I think it's just so important. And if we can take this moment to just encourage folks to do that, uh, if you're, if you're thinking about it, this is your one precious life as Mary Oliver said, and what are you going to do with it? And I think the first step can be like realizing that it's valuable and that you should to protect it. And that can be, uh, really easily facilitated, more easily facilitated by seeking mental health, um, assistance. Amen. So please enjoy our conversation with Reed and take care of yourselves and each other. We love you. Love you. Bye. Welcome to another episode of Processing. This week, we are joined by Reed Peterson. Um, Reed has a master's degree in transpersonal psychology at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, and he's been trained uh, at the Center for Loss and Life Transition and recently launched a really awesome app, which we are so interested in and want to recommend to all of our listeners called Grief Refugee, which is a really interesting app that kind of puts a practice, and I'm going to want Reed to obviously explain it in his own words, but what I have gauged by looking at the app um, is that it's a kind of practical way to manage grief, which sometimes like, you know, we don't realize that there can be an organization to trying to, you know, even though grief is wild and unhinged and that's great too, it's also sometimes useful to be to manage it in a practical way. And so that's a really cool thing about the app that you've created. Reed, hello. Hey, it's so nice to meet you and talk to you, both Zara and Bobby. I'm really grateful and honored to be here. And I'm so curious what comes up in our conversation today. Oh, I know what's going to happen. It is exciting. Um, So Reed, you're joining us from uh, the West Coast. You're in Santa Barbara, California, right? Yeah, my wife and I have lived here almost seven years. Um, yeah, we come from all over the country. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, where, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Minneapolis, and my wife grew up in Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. Amazing. Cool, cool, cool. So, you know, we talked a bit before the interview, uh, before this interview today, like in your, in your pre-interview about kind of what drew you to be doing this work in grief. Um, I mean... I know from talking to you before that you had some, you know, grief experiences of your own that were obviously formative, but like, had you been uh, interested in psychology and in, you know, grief and, and psychotherapy, like before your grief experiences, had that been a kind of lifelong career path for you? 
Definitely interested in psychology. I don't even know why I didn't major in it in undergrad. I actually majored in uh, teaching. I started my my work life as a school teacher, and uh, you know went through the ranks there and went through a lot of trials and tribulations, <laughs> especially in public school systems. And uh, then decided it was time to go to graduate school, and and I chose transpersonal psychology and. Transpersonal psychology probably has like about 300 different definitions, but for me, I chose it as a path, a career path, because I perceived it as like spiritual psychology. I definitely perceived it as something that was focused on transformative experiences. And that's what led me to the West Coast for my master's degree. So... You had two very significant grief experiences in your life, uh, and actually many more, but two familial grief experiences, I should say, that were really significant. Um, I know the first was of your biological dad, right? And then secondly, of your stepdad. Um, Can you just kind of talk to us a little bit about what happened uh, with your dad's dying process? Because I know you mentioned it was kind of a long process and a complicated one. What was that? What was that like? Sure. The complicated one was actually my stepfather's. Um, he had multiple myeloma. So oh my he, God, my he, dad did too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's just such a rare thing to have. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It, you know, it, as, as we share more about our stories, we find that, oh, we have so much similarities and so much synchronistic connections. And, yeah. and that was, you know, part of my desire to learn transpersonal psychology because there was a lot of study of that. Yeah. So multiple myeloma is familiar. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I know about it. Yeah. And in, um, may I ask how long did your father battle my, it for? My dad had it for like 10 years. 10 years. And he had a couple of stem cell transplants and He like noticed it first off because he broke his leg, not doing much, like kind of just walking. And so they had like discovered that like the cancer had initially started to attack his bone and his leg. And it Mm. kind of went from there. And he, my dad was also quite, um, it's funny, I've actually been talking about this all morning in an unrelated way, but, um. He was also just quite unhealthy um, and he kind of given up, I think. And so his weight was like out of control. And I think that like all of those factors kind of contributed to him. What about your stepfather? How long did he have it for? He battled it for eight years and he was so determined to live, you know, another another 30 years of his life. And I just admired his strength and his courage because he was he was in and out of the hospital so many times. Um, he he had one transplant um, from his sister, and uh, what's interesting about Warren, my stepfather, he said that uh, I asked him, "How do you think he got this?" You know, he was fairly open to talking about it, and he actually said he was a postal service uh, delivery person. He said, "I think I think I got it through all the pesticides in lawns when I would wow. when I would walk the routes, and um, I just I always found that super interesting and sad. Obviously, a little bit sad, but um, I, you know, I definitely thought, gosh, I I have a lot of belief in that that that's probably a true possibility. Absolutely, that's really fascinating. It's such a 
It's interesting because multiple myeloma myeloma is um, kind of chronic and it's terminal. You know what it's I mean? Chronic like, terminal illness, right? Yeah. yeah, and so it is one of those things that can drag out, and there is this extreme emotional upheaval in someone having a chronic yet terminal illness because there comes all these points where you're like, they're going to make it, they're going to be okay. And then these very low points and every passing is so different in terms of how much it hurts, right? Like somebody who just doesn't wake up one morning. I mean, that is a shock beyond belief or a car accident. And then there's, you know, a terrible illness that takes three months and it's very severe, but there's something very painful in a very specific way about that kind of chronic long-term death. Did you, how did you feel in response to that? You know, I'm so glad you asked because when I actually didn't physically see his process, I didn't get to witness it visually because I was at a physical distance. Um, At the time he was sick, he was in Minneapolis with my mom and I was on the West Coast And so what I would pick up on was through phone conversations. My, my mom and my stepdad weren't really into, you know, doing video conferencing and I actually don't even think they had internet, but, (laughs) (laughs) but they would pick up the phone and we would talk. And so I would pick up on cues of kind of like what I was hearing about, like the tone of his voice. And over the years, there's a progression of hearing exhaustion. And then he would begin to tell me, I'm just so tired of this. And then I started to formulate through my imagination, he's starting to lose his will to live. And it just really broke my heart. And part of it, I mean, part of feeling so sad about it was I want to do more. You know, I I feel helpless. And I think that's a common experience for any supporter who's embracing or feeling some sense of anticipatory grief yeah. and want to help more. And then there's the exhaustion factor. I mean, when we, we say chronic illness, we mean day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out. You know, czar your dad 10 years, read your, your stepdad's eight years. Eight years of suffering is a long time for both the person who has the illness and the caregivers it's it's such a long run you need so much stamina and sometimes you run out did you notice that in your family that it would be that exhaustion i i really did my best to show up as uh what i call a companion for my mom because i knew she needed that kind of support and so that's where i heard it the most bobby my mom would say i just need a break but i I can't take one It was an interesting dynamic because my mom was an RN for 25 years. And so she knew how to take care of Warren. And I mean, she, she fully embraced that job and, you know, he had a lot of meds to take and he, you know, he was so exhausted, so much brain fog and all the side effects. And so she was on top of him, you know, (laughs) almost like, like a stopwatch. (laughs) And so, (laughs) yeah, but when I would talk to her one-to-one, sometimes, you know, I would, I would call and it'd be super late there because there was a two hour difference. I'd call at night, check in 
Warren would be sleeping and my mom would really break down and just talk about how exhausted she was. And yeah. Yeah. It's hard. You guys it's are bringing up the... some uh, tender memories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's yeah, hard for the caregivers. It. I'm sorry, Zaz. And we're processing it. Yes, exactly. For sure. It's, it's really hard for the caregiver. I love the word you use, by the way, um, companioning. And I noticed in your work that you say that you're a grief companioning practice because it's really the most you can do is just be a companion. You can't fix anything. You can't really change anything, but you can stand side by side and let that person know that you're there for them. But um, it's very hard for caregivers to admit that they're tired, you know, and sometimes it turns to anger and bitterness and it's just such an array because it's once you say you're tired, then you just feel your fear, you fall into it. You know, Mm -hmm. so most people, I'm fine. I can do it. So, right. Or yeah. I sometimes think of it as, uh, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you don't grab a cart because you just think you need one thing and then you're like, you need all these things. So then like you're carrying all of this stuff. You didn't grab a cart and like you have it wedged just the right way. And if someone comes over and is like, can I, let me, let me get you a cart or can I take one of those things for you? You're like, I'd love to do that, but really it's all wedged in this way where I have to carry it just like this or I will drop everything, you know? And what a great metaphor. Love it. Yeah. Sometimes yeah, that's, that's how I think about it. That's yeah. a beautiful practical example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you easy know? to understand. Right. Because like, you know, I think when I, I, I saw it in my own caregiving for my dad, I'm, I have seen it in people that I am close to who are acting as caregivers that, it's not like that you don't want somebody to help you during those moments. It's not that you wouldn't welcome the relief, but it's like you just, you've worked yourself into a system that you don't even know how to, you know what I mean? And I think sometimes in just grief in general, the same thing applies, you know, you've just put yourself into a very specific routine around it where it's just, it's even though it's teetering on the edge, at least it's still teetering. You know what I mean? And it's, and it's scary to think about, um, letting anything touch it that will push it off the edge. Just want to make a comment, Reed. You, you did a piece that I read the other night and I loved it. You were talking about grief and you were talking about um, setting boundaries. And I thought that was one of, a wonderful article about boundaries. Um, and one of the things you said was that people try to take over your, your grief. They try to take over, they want to help, but then they end up thinking they know what, what's better and they they know what you should do and then they take over so could you tell us more about about boundary setting both in as a caregiver and as a person grieving okay (laughs) did i really say that you did so well you're such a good writer and you said it so well yeah no i thanks bobby i that's a nice compliment thank you you know i it's so interesting i'll i'll first open up this conversation by saying, speaking to a little bit about the uniqueness. And so as I prep to answer your questions, I think to myself, gosh, how do I say this in a general way that honors everybody's uniqueness to their own experience? But as a caregiver, um, I think boundaries are, uh, we'll call them a super challenge because Caregivers have the heart, the heart to help. And um, so they put that, for lack of a better word, I wish, I really wish I had a better word, 
they put that sense of pressure on themselves to show up and to provide. And so I think the boundaries are very difficult in that sense. Now, what can a caregiver do? Um, I The first thing that comes to mind is from my own experience and from the experience of communicating with uh, colleagues in this field and uh, my mom being a nurse, um, other friends who are in helping professions, probably changing your environment. So if, if you're in an environment as such where like, for the example of my mom and my stepdad being in their home, if my mom could find a way to take a 20 minute walk on a consistent basis, that probably is really going to help her set some of her own boundaries and just give herself that space to take a break. Um, so that that really comes up. I'm, I'm a big proponent of finding environments that really support self-care. And so I'm definitely privileged where I live to just walk down the street and go for nice long beach walks. I've communicated that and many of the people I've talked to of like how important that's been in my own personal healing, my boundaries, and just like clearing my mind, clearing my heart. Well, not clearing it, but helping me tap into it. And helping me reconnect to whatever that piece inside of myself that I call my center. Now, the other part of your question, as far as uh, people who are in grief and setting boundaries, I, I definitely would say a similar response to finding environments. I often, with my mentor, um, who I've learned how to do grief companioning from, Alan Wolfelt, and myself, I often refer to what I call sacred space. Uh, sacred space is really defined by who the griever is, but in a general sense, sacred space is an environment. Whether you can you can close your eyes, you know you you can be in your living room and you can close your eyes and try to connect with something deeper to yourself, and that can be sacred space. Or you can go to your favorite park, wherever you live, and find an area, a nice bench or um, a beautiful tree. And that can be your sacred space too. And uh, that helps tremendously with boundaries. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that thinking about boundaries in, you know, I think when especially talking about caregiving and grief and the stuff that we often think is meant to be boundaryless. You know what I mean? That in some way a boundary is a negative, especially when it comes to caregiving, it seems almost like a boundary would be rude or something, you know, it's not, but I think that can be the gut reaction. But the thing, I almost feel like I love the word boundaries and I use it often and I try to set mine as, as good as I can and respect other people's. But I think it's almost like a dirty word sometimes to people. It sounds, uh, it sounds harsh. And, but I think that like the thing about it is it creates so much space and so much possibility and so much like, uh, it sets us up for such healthier experiences and relationships, you know? And I think we were talking about, 
like a caregiver, like setting a boundary. So like, Hey, this feels okay. This feels okay. This is actually my limitation for this and this so that I don't sink, you know? And while it can seem like very stern, I think in the moment, I think it can also ultimately really facilitate everyone to have a more healthy experience. And the same thing with grief, you know, setting boundaries around people, how they communicate with you or how, you know, your own personal boundary for how much you can give, how much output you can give. And I don't know. I just think it's an important thing to think about. Well, Reed, you said it very well. You said the word stating what you need. So what a person needs, it's not, not being in charge of the outcome. So could you tell us more about that? Cause I love the way you put that. Oh, sure. I guess I think of it as pretty straightforward. Um, I, I know that in grief, there's a challenge to be clear about what you need. And so that can be a process in and of itself. However, the yes and no's, uh, similar to, I think, some of those clear ways that children communicate, that's a good, it's a good default, for lack of a better word, to be able to utilize that. I often think of like, even in my my wife and my relationship dynamic, she's so diplomatic that it's sometimes I'm like, do you have a hard time saying yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's just so nice, but um, but so the yes or no, and also taking the time. I, I think you know it. it what I've what I've witnessed a lot in converse, observing conversations, especially in group settings, is I think American culture, even from east to west coast, there isn't there isn't a lot of uh, the acceptance or the honoring or appreciating some of the silence in between in between the words that are spoken. Mm. And so, as a griever, uh, being able to articulate and communicate your needs, I think you got to give yourself permission to have those moments of pause where it's like silence. It gives you time to think more clearly. It gives you time to probably feel into a lot of the emotion that's going on inside your body and then speak from there because that's probably going to give you that, that clarity of stating what the need is. Absolutely. I actually learned this um, having a teenager because teenagers can be very persistent. They say, can I, can I, can I go? And I always tell parents about the pause, you know, even in those situations, but in the situations you're talking about as well, to just bring your meter down, your own meter. Because when somebody comes at you in a way and you start to feel your own anxiety, it's important to bring that back down and then you can answer. So as a parent, you can say, I don't, I'm not ready to answer that yet. You know, especially when you start to feel the pressure, and you say, I'll answer you in five minutes when you've, when you've integrated yourself, what the, what the decision is, but boundaries are so important. I often, um, you know, sorry, you brought up the concept of it, boundaries can feel almost selfish. And I tell people it's self-full that that's a different word. And that's what you have to be when you're grieving. Going back to just talking about using silence, I mean, I, I think about how, you know, in stand-up comedy, for instance, silence is a powerful tool. The moments between the jokes make them last, hit harder, but that's a willingness to, um, on the comedian's point of view and the willingness from the audience, right, to sit in an uncomfortable, unknowing pause, right, which, like like you said, culturally, we're not 
really very used to doing. We're very used to kind of filling up all the space where any kind of real feeling and processing can occur with just one thing after another with like, especially now with like media or food or noise or imagery or, or chatter. And, um, there's a lot to be learned in those moments of, you know, I don't know. It's like when you jump out of the plane and you're just kind of like hanging there for a minute and you can be like, Oh my God, what am I going to get to the bottom? I need my parachute. Where am I going? You could just be like, Whoa, a bird, (laughs) you know? And, uh, I think that the more we can kind of just like, you know, realize that we don't have to fear the pauses is really an important kind of thing. So Reed also, I mean, we, you know, started to talk about your stepdad and his passing and I don't want to just gloss over it, although this has obviously been such an interesting kind of conversation where it went, but so he, he had uh, cancer for eight years and then uh, passed. When did that happen? When did he pass away? Warren died June 3rd, 2016. Yeah. So it was a uh, Father's Day this year was um, kind of, it was honestly, it was tough. Uh, yeah. It was really grumpy. And I think I was grumpy because of, I was just really feeling into some grief. And, uh, it, at the time of this recording, it's been five years. And so I was reflecting on, oh, yeah, it's been five years since his death. You know, what what has happened in life? Um, sadly, I feel a little bit more distant from, like, my mom and my siblings. And, and I know part of that is pandemic-related, being at a distance. Um, but I was just, all that was kind of surfacing. And I was like, oh, hmm, these are some tough grief moments today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I need my sacred space. You need your space. Yeah. Um, and so your father also passed away and went and mm-hmm. that happened prior to your stepdad's passing. Yes. Yeah. My dad died uh, 10 years earlier in 2006. I was actually was in graduate school at the time. And so here I was studying about transformations and, you know, taking these leaps and bounds in human consciousness and, Doing drugs. Yeah, yeah that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> a, a lot of drugs, um, psychedelics and everything uh, were definitely studied in transpersonal psychology. I mean, still are, of course. Yeah. But anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, he actually died by accident. But I actually, I tend to describe it as like it was actually a slow process of him killing himself. Um because my dad was an alcoholic and he was a, he was a binge drinker. And so he would, when he would start drinking, it was often likely kicked off by what he would describe as flashbacks from having PTSD. And so he was in the war. Yeah, he did serve in the Vietnam war and he, he actually did some horrible things. Um, He did open up, to share a couple stories with me. Mm-hmm. And I've later learned that that was huge uh, for a veteran to be able to share some of these things. And they're pretty horrific. And um, I think he had a guilty conscience for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And he also, uh, you know, struggled with these flashbacks and 
was in and out of the VA hospital a lot for his mental health and mm-hmm. the alcohol. And um, <clears throat> on the day that he died, he actually was uh, very intoxicated. And uh, what he did was, um, you know, I'm assuming he wasn't fully conscious of this, but he bull charged uh, one of the walls in his house and he hit the top of his head oh, wow. against the wall. And what it did was it severed his cervical spine. Wow. And so he actually died of a subdural hematoma. So sad. He just imploded. He imploded. Yeah. Wow. That's very, yeah. And and Bobby, I, since you did your homework on me, I I don't know if you saw one of the articles I wrote, but like, um, when I found out the news, I actually, my first reaction was, I was like, you son of a bitch, you did it. Because I kind of, for most of my adult life, I was pretty much waiting with some anxiety of like, when, when is he going to die? Because he just keeps putting himself through the ringer. I just keep seeing suffering and more and more suffering. So that was, that was uh, prolonged grief too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Very, very complicated grief um, with the relationship with my dad, because it prolonged, like you said, as far as, you know, always holding that thought in the back of my mind, but then also, um, knowing that I had so much desire for a much deeper emotional connection with my dad, who just, he wasn't available to have that type mm. of relationship with, with any of his children or any mm. of his family. Yeah. Very hard. I mean, so it's interesting with my dad, I often felt in a way because of how he did have cancer, but he also mistreated his body terribly. He wasn't an alcoholic, but he definitely drank and over, a lot and overate. And, you know, when he had had cancer, definitely perhaps even over took some of his medication, you know, and he just, he lived so unhealthfully that like, it wasn't just the cancer. It felt like often that he, I, and I don't mean to demean anyone who did lose anyone uh, to a death by suicide, but it felt like that to me sometimes too. Cause I was like, you're slowly killing yourself with the things you're doing. You know what I mean? And that feeling when it's someone who's supposed to love you, it's so hard to not feel like, why would you do this to me? You know what I mean? Why, if, if I was like good enough, then you would stop eating or you would stop drinking or you would stop, you know, driving drunk, whatever the dangerous behavior is that's like compromising this person. It's so difficult to take that away and realize, you know, like my dad had, he was, he didn't serve in Vietnam, but he had incredible trauma too. He was like in a school for boys when he was a teenager in the sixties. I mean, I think we can all imagine, you know, we know what kind of things happened there. Uh, so much abuse. And I think he just had all this unprocessed trauma too, that just leads to this like slow thing. And it's just very hard to separate when someone is hurting themselves like that. And you're suffering because of it, because you don't get the love you need, or you don't get the like attention you need or whatever, that it's not, a not about you. You know, that's like a lifelong process. We might, you know, it's, we're super lucky if we can even like register that that is reality, but then to really accept it can be such a long process, you know? And I, I, I know for, from talking to other people, I know of parents who are alcoholics, it's just, it's really traumatic. I mean, do you, do you feel that way? Does that kind of register with you? Uh, I, I want to say yes, but kind of with a caveat because I didn't live with my dad. So I, I didn't witness it, um, you know, all the time. 
he was close enough where, uh, you know, we would make plans to connect, but then I wouldn't hear from him, um, because he would binge drink and sometimes I, I would refer to it as disappearing. He would disappear for, you know, three weeks and, you know, like Bobby, you're talking about the, um, prolonged or, uh, anticipatory grief. I, that's when I would get those thoughts of like, well, is he still breathing? <laughs> right. It's really, really rough. So in, you know, the show, we talk, we do try to talk about the intersection of food and grief and it's so different for everyone. And sometimes we have on chefs and they only want to talk about food, which is awesome. And we touch on grief in little ways. And sometimes we talk mostly about grief, you know, but I am obviously curious and I'm sure Bobby is too, just like, because I, because I think that it's one of those great unifiers, no matter what your experience is with food, right? And grief. Like, we will all experience grief and we all experience a relationship in one way or another with food, whether it's, you know, food insecurity or becoming a, a professional chef. Like, or, there's so many different experiences, but we all have one. So just, you know, what was your experience like in your house growing up? Was either your dad or your stepdad a cook? Do you like to cook? Do you, like, you know use food as a tool through grief at all or an escape? Like what, just, what, what are your feelings on that? We'll start with growing up. Um, I think food was used as almost like a suppressant because I was, because <laughs> I was in the Midwest right. <laughs> and, and the household I grew up in, we ate beef every day, wow. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> You're like, where's the beef? You're like right here. <laughs> it's in my tummy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I was just like, oh, wow, I, you know, you, once I got out of my house and, you know, realized like an avocado existed, I, I was like, oh, there's so much about food that I don't know. And so um, I, I definitely appreciated having lived on the West Coast, being able to try like different fishes and, you know, sources of protein that are not beef, yeah. <laughs> beef, beef or chicken. Yeah. Um but uh, so that comes to mind to answer, like the first answer in your question, Zara. I, I also think that uh, one of my first jobs was at a restaurant and wow. uh, I didn't start as a cook because I was too young, but I, I eventually, um, you know, escalated to become a line cook there. It's, it's kind of like a, it was a local chain type restaurant, kind of like a Denny's in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, funny Dutch name. It was called Panakuken. Oh, wow. That is a very funny Dutch name. How, how funny. Curious. Yeah, that was kind of their signature. You know, they had the upside down pancake. That, oh, you know, is that, that what a Panakuken is? The, sort of. I mean, okay. the, the chefs who are listening, they would say, no, it's not. It's very different. <laughs> They're like, that's a Dutch baby. Yeah, but that's, that's awesome. Yeah, but somewhat similar. And um, so, yeah, definitely... Um, had ex- I was a cook there for three years before I went oh. to college, actually. And, and what um, did that feel like? Did you like what did what did you feel like in the kitchen? Well, it was kind of neat because um, it was a, definitely a creative process. Um, there was a lot, truthfully, I felt a lot of pressure because in restaurants, you know, you get slammed, so there's high amounts of stress and short amounts of time. Totally, and so you just gotta crack it out and perform. So <clears throat> didn't have as much uh, freedom to explore with more creative aspects of, you know, uh, 
coming up with a new menu item or something. Uh, I pretty much just flipped the pancakes, uh, <laughs> threw in the panikukins, uh, made omelets. Uh, was, a lot of breakfast food was popular at this restaurant. You know, the thing about being a line cook, though, and I talk about this, you know, I'm a chef and I talk about this a lot with different people in the industry. I had a friend, Mike Stankovich, who said that everybody should have to work at a chain restaurant just like as a teenager, as a prerequisite, you know, to just be in this country. Um, And I think it's, you know, important because it like teaches you empathy, obviously working in the service industry and whatever. But also it's interesting you're talking about the kind of like routine and the, you know, what, what we call in the service industry, getting in the weeds, right? When, when it's really busy and you're cranking stuff out and it's a lot of pressure because we all do get in the weeds in life so often. And there is something that maybe you, you know, I don't know how much of it you took away from working uh, as a young person, as a line cook, but you are forced to do something under pressure and like you, you have to do it. I mean, technically, yes, you could just walk off the line and leave, but it is a sense of urgency unlike almost any other job. And it does set you up for, I think, realizing how you have to sometimes just really like, you know, Re- reach in. down deep into your soul. <laughs> really, to work at a, a breakfast of all, truly, <laughs> to cook breakfast or brunch <laughs> at a restaurant is one of the most, you know, forget the loss of a loved one. Honestly, cooking brunch for people is probably one of the most... I'm just kidding. Is one of the worst experiences aside from actually losing someone. <laughs> but um, you know, I uh, I just wonder how that might have played in at all to your. What about your own focus. eating styles, Reed? What about your you know? Did, is there anything you did with food or used food in a way that helped you deal with your feelings? Uh, yes, of course. I think that um, unfortunately, it's not a happy answer or happy story. (laughs) I, uh, you know, I was a, just a teenager with like a tremendously high metabolism. So, um, my mom said it was, I remember my mom saying, gosh, it's such a blessing. You work at a restaurant because the grocery bill, (laughs) I was, I was eating so much food from this restaurant. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, but in getting to answer your question, Bobby, I, I actually, I, I would say looking back on it now, I learned how to overeat. Mm. And, and so the overeating, although I didn't, you know, uh, become obese or anything because of that metabolism, it, it really, you know, it's uh, no pun intended, but it, it just stuffed emotion inside Mm. of me. And so it kind of like numbed me out to be, from feeling what I felt because my digestive system was working so hard to, Mm -hmm. to break down and process like too much food I put into my body. I don't even even know if I would chew it. I just inhale it. (laughs) There's something about that. As you said that we've all had that experience of just sometimes just eating when we feel something or, or, and it's true. It's true. It just pushes everything down and sits on everything. And the, energy you're saying goes towards digestion instead of processing what's really going on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I do the opposite thing where like when I feel really like tense and upset and then especially in times of grief, I can't eat, which I think is another way of, I don't know, like 
I don't know, pushing it down in the same way, but it is also not dealing with it because it's like starving your body for something that it needs. And I don't mean in like a, you know, anorexia way. It's just, I feel like, ugh, you know, like the pain like doesn't allow me to even nourish, but I think it kind of is reaching the same goal ultimately. Like, you know, I don't know. It brings us back to how self-care is so important right. in, in grief. Totally. Um, you know, there were, there was one other thing I want to go back to if it's okay if, um, when you talk about your dad, you had talked a lot about reframing relationships. And I thought that that would be an important thing to talk about because um, tell us more what you mean by that. You said that that's a significant thing for you in dealing with um, a difficult relationship with your dad. Yeah. Thanks. Actually um, it's been over 15 years since my dad has been dead. And a couple years ago, actually after Warren had passed my stepfather, um, it, it really surfaced. It, it helped bring up some prolonged grief that I perhaps wasn't facing or uh, embracing. And it's, it, got, it got me thinking about my dad. And while I was doing my training with the Center for Loss and Life Transition, I was really reflecting on my relationship with my dad. And I was like, hmm, a lot of my memories are what I would call judgmental. I perceived them in a negative way and they were not necessarily regret, but the memories were of, I wish it was blank. So there was this desire for things to be different. And then I had a bit of a self-perception of like somewhat of a victim, but also somewhat of um, kind of a, a sufferer that, I didn't have it and there was no way to do anything about it because my dad was no longer living. But then through some personal work and some of my own grief processing, I realized there is a possibility of hanging on to more of some of the positive connections that I had with my dad. Like, like for example, although my dad was not emotionally available, available, he surprised me when he would say, I'm so proud of you. And, and I would often think to myself, well, what are you proud of? Like, I'm just this dude kind of coasting through life. But like for him, you know, for me to get a college degree was so huge. And he saw like how I would treat my girlfriends at the time, you know, with like loving kindness. And he he really respected that. And, and so that meant so much to me because my dad, he wouldn't even hug me. He would shake my hand. So there was some, you know, there, there was, it wasn't a stereotypical um, healthy father-son relationship that one might think of. And so, <clears throat> so I'd think about these situations and I'd be like, okay, you know, I guess it's making a choice, Bobby. I'm making a choice to reflect on some of these more positive experience and not give as much space for what I judge to be the negative experiences. And that, that, that's actually helped me get to know my dad better because I, I identify as a highly sensitive person. And I, as I reframe some of these experiences with my father, I'm like, he was too, mm. you know, I, I just have moments of clarity where I was like, Oh, he was highly sensitive. Mm. 
and and he needed he needed space period because that inner tornado was always whirling inside him and and I, that's a metaphor for like how much emotion he was feeling or what he yes. was picking up on from his environment and he didn't have the fortune of of finding um you know his sanctuary he just could never find it and 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 then the gift that you have that you've been able to find that that's so profound really that you you're so different i imagine than your dad in some ways but you see you can see the similarity of both being highly sensitive people it just um, turned in and turned out or something i don't know just different right you nailed it yeah. i yeah. i digress because i don't know if there's anything more to say after that bobby <laughs> yeah. yeah i think that you know in in just response to what you're talking about read about reframing the relationship i think that you know there's so many things i think about that first off is that like you know we only have this one little bit of time and you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, and I do agree with this, it's important to kind of really holistically look at how you feel about a situation so you can heal, you know what I mean? The negative, the positive, and you take it in so you can actually build yourself up better. But an asterisk on that, to, you know, your point is that we do only have this bit of time. So we also, like, yes, and, have to choose how we want to spend that time. And Myself, like I've, you know, in my own, you know, therapy and psychoanalysis, like I've sometimes maybe spent too much time focusing on the things that were negative and how hurt I am. And I don't want to say too much for anyone, just for myself, you know? And like, I think the balance in being able to be like, well, how do I actually want to, what would be my wish to live every day? And how do I get there? You know? And again, maybe for some people, it's more about, it is about accepting your anger or whatever. But if you get to that point where you feel like it's healthy for you to be able to reframe your relationships with people and look at the positive aspects of it so that like the rest of the days of your precious life, however long that lasts, you know, are, are nice ones, are as good as they can be. And I think that's a really wonderful gift to be able to give yourself if you can. To envision, to envision what you want, what you want to be is, is really powerful. Um, because then your choices reflect that. Our choices are so important. Um, wow, we could go on and on. I wanted to tell you, by the way, that I, I next to, um, well, I would, I want to say Alan Wolford is wonderful. And for those of people that don't know who he is, um, he's so prolific. He was, I mean, I think it was 30 years ago that I started, you know, hearing about him. I've seen him speak several times. And he said things that are that I remember to this day, and I pass on to people, you know, all the time. He said something which I've actually used in uh, with many clients. He said um, that with children, he said you invite them to dance, but you let them lead. And he always had such profound things to say that just stuck. Thirty years later, he's written many books. So the fact that you trained with him, I thought, was really um, I can I can see that in you and. Uh, I just wanted to mention that for those of people. And we also want to talk about your amazing um, work. And could you tell people more about that? Now, Zara said before, grief refugee. I thought it's grief refuge, but I realized that they're so similar. They really kind of go together. Is it grief refuge? (laughs) Yeah, the app is grief refuge, but no No! worries. It's all good. (laughs) I'm in Suburgatory. I'm so sorry. 
think about it. A griever feels like a refugee. They I'm feel a like huge a huge Tom Petty fan, so that's <laughs> that's my problem here. I'm thinking of you don't have to live like a refugee. Okay, so grief refuge. That actually maybe makes more sense. I'm my sincerest apologies and bless you for not correcting me in the moment. But yes, can you can you tell us more about grief refuge and the Sure. app that you created because it's really amazing it's really so well, wonderful well thank you yeah it's um <clears throat> have you guys ever seen the show manifest no what is it, it? it's <laughs> manifest is uh it was some tv show i think it was just canceled it was on nbc for three seasons okay i'm, I'm cracking up because um in the show all these characters who survive what was anticipated to be a plane crash, but then people show up um, five years later somehow, time passes on. So it's this, cool. this mystery of what happens, but when they return, they have supernatural experiences that they keep referring to as callings. And in each episode, the characters look at each other and they're like, oh, was that another calling? And it gets... <laughs> It gets kind of cheesy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but but I, I mentioned that because I'm almost hesitant to say, but Grief Refuge actually came about from a calling. I As I went through my grieving process, um, specifically after Warren died, I w- in my local community, I joined bereavement support groups, and I also did work with a grief counselor, And I had great experiences, but there was this longing, truthfully, it was a longing for what do I do in between? You know, like I'm I'm meeting with this group once a week and I'm meeting with this counselor once a week. And do I just ignore what I feel tomorrow because I'm not going to speak to anybody about it? Or what do I do with it? And so... I really sat with that and I started feeling like a calling of like, Reed, you can create something that could provide sacred space or provide a tool to help grievers honor their own grief and and or manage it. And you can provide something to them on a daily basis. And so that that's kind of how this all came to fruition. I was really responding to something that felt like it was greater than myself, just saying, yeah, do this. You you have the skills, you have the abilities, go for it. And so I started putting together some like concepts uh, for the app, under, uh, you know, asking grievers what features would be of most help. And the number one answer was what they referred to as a thought for the day. And that has become on the app, it's called the Daily Refuge. And so what it is, is it's, um, you know, anywhere from like a three to five minute audio musing, and it's really reflective. And it helps a user of the app sit with their own grief grief experience to help better understand it and hold space for it. And, And I've also gotten great feedback that it calms their nervous system. I, I narrate the experiences. And so there's, um, throughout the years, I've gotten a lot of feedback of like, Reed, you should be a late night radio jazz host. And you should, you have a very soothing <laughs> voice. voice. beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the soothing voice. And, and I think, you know, referring to my own calling from a higher power, it's kind of like, 
oh, you've got this gift of this soothing voice, put it to use. And so that's part of the, the whole creation of the app. And so the app what also has there? several other yeah. features. Sorry, Bobby, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what else is on there? What are the other features? There's other features such as a, a journaling feature, which I, I think is important because it helps categorize. Um, the, the way it's designed is it helps categorize journal experiences in relationship to certain emotions that may be felt, such as like if you're feeling a lot of anger, here's where you can add notes to this section of the app. Uh, what else does it, it does tie in? I, I have a grief refuge podcast and it does tie in episodes from that podcast. And then there's um, a section called reflections, which is a developing section um, that will share stories uh, from people in grief who have gotten what I refer to as the lighter side of it. You know, it's kind of a, a dark and light experience, but like, you know, some some people new, newer to their grief experience, they just feel so hopeless and just can't see any light in the darkness that they're feeling. So the reflections are stories to help provide some source of hope and inspiration. And then there's actually for the people who like data, <laughs> there's actually a section in there that's a self-assessment questionnaire. It's called My Grief Journey. And each day. Um, you can go in and answer five questions and it gives you numbers. And for those that want to, uh, no pressure, of course, um, everybody's grief process is unique. But for those that want to kind of track, quote unquote, progress with their grief journey, the numbers kind of give them hard data to do so. I've, tr you know, truthfully, I've, I've tried to find some uh, research partners who want to use the app to to measure some uh, um, healing or I, I'm sure a researcher wouldn't use the word healing, but yeah. <laughs> some aspect of healing in their own grief process. And um, that that's still in process. I, uh, you know, still looking for the right relationships and partnerships with that. It's interesting. I always tell people not to take their temperature. So it's the opposite of that. I always say, don't take your temperature. Don't have anybody else take your temperature, but I can see why you would want to mark progress you know, I think some people want to do that and some people don't, but that's because people are so different. Like some, you know, some of us are so cerebral and so some of us are so results oriented and that is a, not a negative at all. And some people need to be way less cerebral and way like, you know, when I was saying earlier about like being able to have something that can help organize your grief, I think is very important for some people, whereas some folks need to be very wild and their grief needs to be expressed in like a giant painting or like, you know, going out into the desert and, you know, doing peyote and yelling into the void. Like, I think there's a lot of different people who have different needs and the same person who has different needs at different times. And so I think it's really great to have a tool like this that can help people get some kind of, you know, I, I I'm using the word organization cause it's ringing out to me, but you know, mm -hmm. some kind of structure around their grief task-oriented uh, stuff is very important sometimes when you feel lost. Yeah, I appreciate that, Zara. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's great. I'm so impressed. It's awesome. Well, for those of our listeners who are grieving, which are many people who listen to our podcast are grievers, um, I hope that they, they find the app and sign up for, if you feel like a refugee, 
<laughs> join the grief refuge. It's <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the um, new slogan. <laughs> exactly. See, we, that one's for free. Um, so Reed, at the end of each show, we always ask folks, um, you know, if you could kind of be sitting with yourself, your younger self, the beginning of this grief journey. And for you, I know you've had a few experiences with really intense grief, but um, wherever you're seeing yourself as that person who might need some advice or just some guidance, do you have any words for your younger self, knowing what you know now, what you've gone through? Probably too much uh, to say, but definitely no need to fear what, you know, what hits you on the inside. And also it, it has a place in life. So make, make the time and make the space to honor it. Those are the first two things that really come to mind. And also, um, the last thing I'll say is, uh, as painful as it may be, it's that much worth it to experience it in your heart and in your body, just as much as in your head. There's an Ananias Nin quote, I don't remember exactly my paraphrase, but there's something she said once about, and the time came when the risk to remain inside the bud was worse than the risk it took to blossom, you know? So I think that kind of feels on point there. Um, And then lastly, if, you know, since this is a food show and we do think so much about food, uh, we'd love to, even though we're all so far apart, we'd love to imagine that we could all be sharing a meal together, um, which is such a wonderful way, I think, to even end something that is so emotionally, such a big emotional ask, like coming on the show. So if we were all going to share a meal together, we like to think about what we would all bring. So do you have something in mind that you might want to bring to a shared meal with Bobby and I? I would actually love to bring what I've invented as like an elixir beverage. Uh, yeah. So my wife and I are big kombucha consumers and, but, uh, I've, I've gotten a little bit burnt out on GT's kombucha and then I haven't found a different brand that, uh, I, I super really enjoy that I can drink on a more consistent basis. So I've developed this elixir drink where I blend in apple cider vinegar, of course, and it's um, got mineral water, usually lemon mineral water, and then also some fresh squeezed lemon. And then I add, it's actually from Trader Joe's. It's like a, um, a ginger lemon, I think echinacea drink. Is it like the little? It's a juice. Oh, it's a juice. Okay, because you have those. They have those mini things too. Sometimes. Yeah. No. It, it, I think it's like I don't know if it's, if it's a half gallon or what, but right. um, regular. But size. so I blend that, and I probably only you know add like maybe a third to a fourth of a cup, mm-hmm. and throw a couple ice cubes in there and stir it up, and it's <gasps> it's truthfully it's sweet, but it's very refreshing. So um, oh. it's a great summer elixir drink. Sounds amazing. I don't know, Zara, but we can't really bring any sweet dessert after that. Maybe we should just have the elixir. I don't know. Just the elixir? No, I think we need a full we need a full right. meal here. All right, what else? Let's see. I'm gonna bring it I'm gonna bring, based on your first job, a Dutch baby pancake. <laughs> but I'm gonna bring a Dutch baby pancake that has that's a savory one because I love savory Dutch babies. Mm. And you know, 
for anyone listening who doesn't know a Dutch baby, they're, they're these almost crepe-like pancakes that billow out of the side of the pan. And you can put fruit and stuff like that. But I would bring one that had like maybe some delicious Greek things on it, like some feta cheese, some cherry tomatoes, cucumbers, big thing of like labna in the middle, maybe some like smushy roasted eggplant. And you can just tear at it and make your own bites. I'm picturing one that's huge. So like maybe, you know, garbage can lid size Dutch baby. Okay, well, I guess I will bring the dessert, but I'm going to bring peaches because they're in season now. Mm. Really exciting. I just had a wonderful one this morning. And blueberries. I love the combination of peaches and blueberries. And the things are, the other day you suggested making a pavlova. And oh, I don't yeah. know if you know what a pavlova is. It's um, it's an egg white, crispy, crispy. So it doesn't really have a lot of sugar, like but mar- it's just it's this a wonderful meringue. meringue. Yeah. It sounds it's like a so- disease, but it's not. It's a dessert. <laughs> All right, we got a good meal. Reed, it's been so lovely to meet you. Yeah, really nice. And um, know about your work. And, and thank you so much for sharing the intimacies of, of your grief and your, and your life. We really appreciate really, really. it. And for well, doing something to help other people. It's really beautiful. You two are fantastic. So keep, keep up the great work. And I, it just, you made me feel special today. So thank you very much. Thanks, Reed. You are special. Thank you so much. <laughs> and we'll talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at Processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.